This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Today, every federal agency operates in an environment where budgets are tightening and the demand for services seems to be increasing. Agencies need to become more effective and more efficient with the resources they have. The Federal Systems Integration and Management Center, FedSim, within GSA, works to assist agencies to do just that. What are the strategic priorities for FedSim? How does FedSim work with federal agencies? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Chris Ham, Director of FedSim. So, Chris, uh, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Tom Burtke. Tom, welcome, as always. Great. Thank you, Michael. Chris, would you tell us more about the mission and history of GSA's Federal Systems Integration and Management Center? Sure. Uh, FedSim. The, uh, the core concept is really around having a bunch of high-quality technical professionals that also know acquisition and getting them together to, do, to create a functional specialty around doing really large projects. Uh, it started in 1972. Uh, it was a bunch of enterprising folks from the Air Force. Um, uh, it wasn't GSA. GSA delegated uh, authority to the Air Force to create uh, this special program that was going to focus on um, high-performance computers, do analysis on those computers, see what, how, they, how much they could get the most out of them, performance benchmarking, testing, and reporting, so it was a bunch of uh, blue suitors who really did work on the hardware itself and then creating and writing their own reports. Uh, they got very good at it. Mm -hmm. uh, they started doing service for other parts of the military. Uh, the Air Force was going to do work for the Army, do work for the Navy. Uh, you know, commanders rotate in and out, and suddenly a new commander ro rotates in and says, why are we doing work for the other services? That's not really an Air Force mission. Um, so it started to, to morph from being a service for other entities within the Air Force um, in discussions with GSA to move it back to uh -huh. GSA. So um, in 1985, the entire program was lifted from the Air Force and moved into GSA and merged with another program. Uh, think about where technology was evolving at that time. Uh, there were large systems with basically dumb clients. And then uh, around in the 80s and then into the 90s, the rise of the personal computer, rise of software, the people who are experts in that kind of underlying technology mm -hmm. were no longer experts in the way that technology was moving. So they stopped doing work as their own technical consultants and started to hire contractors. So it started to shift the mission from underlying technical expertise doing work itself as the government to a procurement activity that also hired outside technical experts 
and then manage the study or the production of, of whatever we were building for the government. So it really started to morph in that 80s and 90s time period. And that's when technology took off. Uh, the, the dollar amount and the, the importance to the way that the government operates really started to change. And that's kind of how we got to where uh, the organization is today. And operationally, how uh, are you organized? What sort of mix and size of your, the services, the portfolio that you have? And how do you fund your operations? It's one of the most interesting things about it. It's, um, the organization is not appropriated. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an entirely fee-for-service organization, not mandatory. Um, no one has to use us. If we're not any good, we'd go out of business. Mm-hmm. The organization does um, probably two main things that, uh, that the rest of the federal government would choose to buy. Uh, the first is we help award contracts. So we'll manage uh, the acquisition process for a very, very large competition. Think something around $100 million mm, wow. up to around a billion dollars. Mm. Um, each agency has their own contracting office, but they buy things like a large system about once every five years. Um, I buy about 20 a year. Wow. So we have experts that know how to manage and navigate that large acquisition process, getting through the you know all of the paperwork for contracting, and then once it's awarded, then we're going to manage the service delivery from that contractor for that customer. So any part of the federal government that's using us, um, we'll assign resources to work directly with that agency um, throughout the life cycle of a contract. From who we are, how many people we are kind of thing, this year we'll probably do $1.7 billion in annual revenue. That revenue is mostly uh, contracted dollars uh, going out for, for working on uh, projects with large, you know, large system integration companies. We have uh, 143 people right now. Um, that's been rising, and we'll probably continue to, to grow there. Uh, the, the work mix is it's more defense than civilian. Um, some of it is the, the nature of the way that dollars are spent. DOD is obviously a huge budget. And some of it is organizationally. We've done work with uh, the DOD for you know, the entire organizational history. We tend to keep a lot of the customers once they get the value of the service. So right now it's probably 60% DOD, um, 40% civilian. Uh, the civilian market, it, it's, it's not all of them. It's uh, a couple of major ones. Uh, we work with uh, the Department of Agriculture and Homeland Security are probably the two biggest clients. We do have GSA internally as a customer as well. And uh, fourth biggest is probably the, uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, oh. FDIC. And then a bunch of other smaller things uh, throughout the civilian market. So, Chris, welcome. Glad you could make it this morning. Um, I, I already know that FedSim thinks of itself as a program management organization that happens to issue contracts. Can you explain the theory uh, behind this definition? Some of it is just getting to the core alignment of how the government should be focused rather than um, focusing on the individual processes. Uh, the government likes to organize around uh, certain activities. It makes sense when you're drawing an org chart to put something on a box, like you know, acquisition or procurement for one thing, and then mission or program somewhere else. The two things shouldn't be separate. Yeah. The, the whole reason why you have a buying arm is so that it helps you buy the thing that you get the outcome of what you need in the first place. So don't draw them as separate boxes. Merge them into the same thing. Our goal is to help a customer, um, when they have an idea and money, get them through all of the regulations and paperwork to actually get the outcome that they want. And then, if you think about it from a time standpoint, the act of buying is a couple of months. The delivery arm tends to be a couple of years. Most of your time and energy should be spent on the delivery side. So, Chris, what are your specific responsibilities as director of FedSim within the uh, GAO's GSA Office of Assisted Acquisition Services? And how do your efforts support GSA's overall mission? 
I just recently became the director. Uh, I, I got the job in November of 2014. Uh, before that, I was the deputy director for five years. Um, the, the two different roles are similar to what you'd see in a private company. Uh, the vice president, the deputy director, tends to focus on internal operations, you know, setting all policy, all training, quality, human resources kind of stuff that's you know, internally focused. The director job is the mirror image of that. Um, it's an external-facing job where I interact primarily with GSA leadership, um, with industry leadership, and then uh, trying to run the entire organization. So the annual budget, the amount of FTE and staffing that we have, um, all core interaction with any stakeholder, you know, congressional interest kind of thing. And then whether or not the organization strategically is going to grow and how we're going to, to change our overall posture within the market. So I'm, I'm spending a lot more time. Um, outside events, uh, interacting with industry, uh, much more trade associations, and then um, trusting the internal staff to, to deliver. So, uh, Chris, given your role and responsibilities and duties, what are your, say, top three challenges that you face in your position? How have you sought to address those challenges? Uh, I, have, I definitely have three. Um, <laughs> you could probably limit me there to three, but... Uh, <laughs> um, Probably the most topical right now is the Continuous Diagnostic and Monitoring Program. CDM. So uh, my office was uh, out, the DHS office that runs the CDM program sought out the procurement expertise of my office in order to run that program. So we are trying to do a government-wide vehicle to buy um, two different things. Phase one is the, the sensors and devices that are going to go out across the federal networks. And then the second part is the identity management of everyone who's on the networks. Mm-hmm. Trying to get the government to buy as one, um, obviously it would make great business sense. You would leverage pricing. Uh, but, you know, the government is large and diverse, and each different ordering activity has got a different level of maturity, readiness, and active participation, and they all have different technical architectures to start out with. So we're trying to, to organize the government to get the best deal on these cybersecurity controls. At the same time, like recently, like with the OPM hack, it's urgent. So you've got to do it very fast, but also maintain you know, an equal opportunity for every interested vendor to bid on that requirement. So it's a massive program. It's, um, it's taking up probably a third of my organization's resources right now to try and deliver all of these in succession. And it, there's, this is only going to continue. So organizationally, it's probably our, our most significant program right now, and it's definitely going to get the most uh, attention from every stakeholder. Uh, number two, and th- this is true in any organization, but if you think about it in the government, it's got you know, unique challenges. Um, just generally hiring and retention, uh, the, the services that we deliver are entirely people-based. The quality of the people and the, their ability to execute. Uh, we lost about uh, 26 people in the last two years to retirement. Subject matter experts, senior folks, absolutely killer in their trade. But now they get to you know, you know, buy their boat and you know, move out to the farm <laughs> and do whatever it is that you want to do in retirement or you know, keep working. And then I've got to replace and retrain. So I'm, I'm in the midst of that, that you know, retooling for the organization. A third one is an area that I'm very passionate about. Um, this one may get some coverage later if I keep talking about it. I am not a fan of the current protest venue and processes. Um, my office focuses on very large acquisition. By default, if you have a large program where an incumbent is not successful, their inclination is likely to protest because there is an underlying revenue incentive for them to file a challenge. Whether or not the process was conducted fairly or not. 
There is a value in a public procurement system to be able to protest. You absolutely need to have that as the right way of making sure that the government follows its procedures. But the incentives are misaligned right now. And so we need to change something in the way that the protest venue works so that there is a cost that equals the revenue incentive for a company that loses. So they're just not delaying the outcome. So, Chris, given your background uh, as the deputy director, now as director, what are the characteristics to you of an effective leader? And perhaps you can illustrate some of your leadership principles that you've used. Uh, I had an opportunity to go to a, a, a class uh, at uh, the Harvard uh, Kennedy School for Government. And one of the things that they gave you was a, a printout of a lot of the, the previous Harvard Business School reports. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one there uh, from Cotter called Leading Change, the, the eight steps in, in trying to lead change in building coalitions. Uh, it was. It's very powerful. Uh, I have it printed out next to my computer. Just the, you know, the, the, just a reminder. That, you know, there, there's a way to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all systems are resistant to change, but if you just you know try and follow this, these eight steps, you'll be able to get there. I had an opportunity to have two different supervisors, two different parts of my career, where they let me take risks that break the the standard way of this is how we do it. So because I had two different supervisors that gave me the opportunity to to take a risk, have support, make sure that we do it properly, and then change our core processes, that's what I'm trying to do now for the organization. I want to reduce the amount of non-value-added effort that we're putting into this system. I, I, I hate waste and I hate inefficiency. You know, I hate writing the check for my taxes at the end of the year, <laughs> and I'm sure everyone else does too. It, it's really around trying to support every employee to feel confident that they're making decisions. As long as their intent is supporting the government, we'll have their back and we'll support them and then design a system that lets them do that. What are the strategic priorities for FedSim? We will ask its director, Chris Ham when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can DOD improve its acquisition processes? Check out the latest IBM Center report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. The authors emphasize the urgency of acquisition reform in DOD, given budgetary constraints and security challenges, finding that DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while resisting the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. This report continues the IBM Center's interest in better understanding and improving the federal government acquisition process. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Chris Hamm, Director of the Federal Systems Integration and Management Center, FedSim. Also joining us from IBM is Tom Vertke. So, Chris, um, many folks who are listening are familiar with cer- certain business functions that the, the government performs, sort of finance, accounting, IT, but maybe not so much procurement. Would you give us an overview of the key elements of the acquisition management process? What is procurement in the federal space? This is one of those where I want to I want to do a video that's like the <laughs> how a bill becomes a law. That's a great um, one. Just to be able to show people the process steps on why it takes so long. I, I do you know, some sort of role reversal training with some industry folks just to show them all of the paperwork that we, we create. The, uh, the acquisition process generally starts with somebody has an idea on how to do something. They've got to get permission um, in order to go ask for money. They're going to go through the budget process, write up business cases on mm-hmm. how they're going to get funding. And so they're, they have a vested interest in, I want to deliver something. Um, so they go through the budget process that takes, you know, sometimes many years, but at least a year for them to start to get approval to do, if it's a new effort, new funding. And once they have their money, that's when they're suddenly realizing, I need help to buy this. Um, an internal procurement shop, 
uh, will uh, will be assigned to do the work, or if they were seeking outside support, somebody like FedSim, then you know they'd be talking to us. It all starts with having their approved budget, and once you have a budget, uh, there are a couple of things when you're starting an acquisition that um, seem meaningless, but actually take up a lot of time. The first thing you have to do is decide whether or not um, what's the overall dollar amount for it, and whether or not it's suitable for small business. Uh, the first step in almost all acquisitions is a, a set-aside determination on whether or not it's going to go automatically to small business or potentially to not to small business to large business. So you have to do uh, an RFI and a justification to say that the, the paperwork, you know, of which what size company is the right kind of company to start with. The next step is see whether or not you have to consolidate any requirements from anything else. There's a rule in the government that consolidation of two or more small is bad, or if you're just combining two things, you know, it affects the, the supplier base. So there's a separate document that documents whether or not you're consolidating. Once you have those two things, then you have to write an acquisition plan. Uh, the acquisition plan is a rather uh, prescriptive, lengthy document. Um, uh, I think the ordinary one that we'll write is probably 25 pages, um, explaining all of the nuances of the acquisition. Who did it before? What's the underlying outcome? What's your schedule? Um, whether or not – and there's some things in there that are like vestigial from the past, like a make or buy decision, like if we're buying a ship, should we make the ship or should we buy the ship? Um, all sorts of the little questions that make sense, but when you add them in aggregate, there's like 17 different components of it. Uh, you'll have um, multiple reviews to get an acquisition plan approved. And then once you get through all of those reviews, um, then you've got to start actually focusing on the thing that it is that you started out doing of the requirements of what you're buying. Um, that's normally a month or two long process of requirements definition, um, writing a statement of work or a requirements work document, some sort of version of here's what I need. And the, uh, there will be a team of people that are documenting that. And then there's a, a corresponding sister activity there. The contracting officer and contracting specialist are putting a wrap around the whole thing. That's a lot of the things that you would see in an ordinary contract, like how are we going to price it? What are the deliverables? What are the evaluation criteria? Um, to get all of that completed, that two or three month process, it goes through a bunch of reviews. Uh, there's lawyers everywhere, and this is no <laughs> exception. Uh, lawyers are going to review just about every document that's spending significant money, making sure that we're following the rules. Once that's completed, um, there's some associated smaller documents that you'll also create, and then you'll put that thing out to industry to bid. The default position is you should put things out for at least 30 days just to let companies have an opportunity to prepare a response and make sure that you're getting you know, competition. DOD has a specific rule here where it's got to have a response from three or more or 30 days. And then after that, then you're getting to the which company's proposal is the best. You can evaluate them many different ways, you know, written proposals, oral presentations. Um, we even do some videos um, mm -hmm. submitted back. Uh, picking the one that meets the requirements the best and then writing up what turns out to be a very lengthy technical report and a corresponding very detailed cost analysis mm -hmm. uh, in a, what's called an award decision document to, to basically justify all of the things that you went through that your decision was sound. There's a lot of time and attention that goes into the writing of those two documents to make sure that they are unassailable so that if you were to get protest, that's what the, the decision is going to, to hang on, that, that documentation. So that's how, why it takes a couple of months, you know, in that six to seven month time frame from start to finish, where a lot of it isn't focused on what it is the person wanted to buy in the first place and how well they did it. It's probably 20 or 30 percent that and the rest is paperwork exercise to get it through the, the wickets. You've mentioned that you've, uh, you've positioned FedSim as a one-stop shop for large complex acquisitions. And to that end, I'd like to get a sense of your key strategic goals and priorities. 
my office only has a very small percentage of the, the overall IT spend. It's never going to be a lot. But I, I, I do think that my office or offices like mine um, should be better positioned to do things that agencies don't have to create their own contracts themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, each agency is kind of known for creating its own MAC. Uh, it's a multiple word contract or if they're one of the special ones, they can create a, a GWAC contract. And so they're duplicating the effort of organizations that are, have already created them. They should be using um, Alliant or Oasis or other, you know, GWAC, uh, NIH, CIOSP, yeah. uh, NASA Soup. Those things take a lot of the time and energy out of buying. So each agency should just be putting a storefront around those vehicles and calling them their own rather than um, the, the Air Force has been trying to create a vehicle called NetSense for about three years. That doesn't seem like a good idea to me. I, I, you know, um, maybe if I was you know, in charge of the NetSense Vehicle Fair Force, it would. But um, what I want people to do is to recognize that, that acquisition has a cost. And so they should be trying to balance that cost with the service delivery of, of their underlying mission. I would like to do more work. Uh, I think that you know, my office does a particularly very good job on doing large IT acquisition and now some large professional services acquisition. And it doesn't have to be my office. You know, create an office like my office within each agency that specializes in doing their, their complex buys. Rotate people around different agencies. But find a way to, to focus on tying that mission to the large, complex things that are going to c- catch people up in these multi-year kind of protests where they're really, really sticky. So as a follow-up, what are some of the key internal and external drivers and trends that have shaped and informed your strategic direction? And would you briefly highlight some of the core initiatives you're pursuing to meet those priorities? Well, cybersecurity has been a huge driver for us because of the, 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 the recent uh, like leaks and in information, my own personal information, for example. <laughs> so I, I would like to, to you know, continue the, the good work that we're doing on the CDM program. I, I think a, a major growth area for us is going to be in the professional services area. The, there was a, a contract that was awarded called Oasis that I originally thought would be a replacement vehicle for some work that was going on or Mobis or Pez or Logworld, but um, mostly like lower dollar labor contract kind of work. Um, it turns out that there's a really a large unmet need for um, an expertise in buying large, complex professional services. Uh, we did a lot of these as IDIQ contracts in the past. Uh, we have two major programs, one with um, the Joint Improvised Explosive Device Defeat Organization and one with uh, CDC, where they're taking a combination of people and stuff that you couldn't really do effectively under the GSA schedule program because you didn't have the ability to cost reimbursement style contracting. You couldn't do um, some of the post-award buying of materials. And so we're, we're, I'll give you an example where, where this has become you know, very, very meaningful for, for the Defense Department. If you want to train people on how to defeat IEDs, you need to get experts and know, who know how to do that. And you need to have things that are not generally commercially available, like abandoned cars and kitty litter. You want to plug those two things together. You can't plug those together on, on the same contract because they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. So you have to have a company that can do the purchasing for those things on an as-needed basis. And when, when the threat changes, that they can correspond and change and buy the things that they need to buy two years from now that we haven't imagined because they've reacted to it. You can't do that on a firm fixed price basis or on a labor hour basis. You have to have a company that could go out and do the purchasing for you. Be like, all right, this time it's you know, plastic water bottles that are going to be the threat. So let's figure out how to do that. So we've seen um, that kind of requirement shifting on professional services. So now most of our new work uh, for these entities is going to be like an Oasis-style task order where we hire a company and they provide the underlying requirements and the stuff that you're going to be buying. 
Chris, what does it mean that FedSim provides full-service life cycle support to federal agencies, and would you be able to elaborate on the activities and services provided to your government clients? The best way I can describe the, the focus on the post award is it's an actual customer service. Um, when, when somebody needs something, or even when they don't, when we're just in post-award, I have a resource that is dedicated to that program that sits with that program, attends their meetings. When they call at 7 o'clock at night, they're answering the phone. They're returning the phone call. They're supporting the mission of that agency. Um, the, a lot of our folks end up collecting badges, you know, like they're proud of, you know, <laughs> going Native and working at that, that other agency. But it, it, it's such a different experience than what people get whenever they're working with uh, an in-house contracting shop, or at least most in-house contracting shops, where it's such a, a hands-off relationship there where, you know, they send something over and they don't know where it is and it's a 30-day process before they get reviewed and submit. Mm-hmm. Whereas my folks are so actively in, in their supporting their engagement that they become part of the team and they actually feel customer service for the first time in an area be- from a, a government service provider. So that helps that, that person focus on what the outcome of the contract is while I'll have a staff behind the scenes that's re- they're reviewing every invoice. So that part is for the most fun uh, is when you're actually delivering something and, and helping that, that agency get to the outcome. So that's why a lot of our folks they'll, will come in. They'll work on an assignment for maybe two or three years. Once the project is completed, then they move on to another agency working on a new engagement. So they're getting you know, refreshed skills around each different technology they're working on. And they're staying in the office because I'm giving them an opportunity to move from agency to agency to agency. Great answer and great philosophy. Uh, I'm curious, how many customers does FedSim have today? And what is the typical FedSim customer profile? We have 140 active projects today. The um, the the default would be every branch of the service. Any, anybody in the military, we've got some sort of customer engagement, but you know, it's so large that nobody would cover the, the entire full suite of DOD. Uh, our, our largest are probably at the, the joint level, you know, things with the Department of Defense directly, less so with the, the Navy. Um, we have a lot of Air Force work and we have a lot of Army work, and, and I think that those are definitely going to continue. Within the civilian market, it's the, the couple that I mentioned before, um, just the DHS, FDIC, GSA, and, and agriculture. They have, they tend, the projects tend to have an overall similarity. Um, it, they're almost always a, a client that has the ability to influence where they're getting their service provided from. You know, if the answer is, you know, doesn't matter, you're doing it with our internal shop, obviously my office could never get engaged in there. So they've, they've got to have something that trumps any sort of internal turf or politics. Um, so for us, that tends to be mission. I know that FedSim considers <coughs> itself to be vehicle agnostic, um, but what types of contracts and contract vehicles are at your disposal for use in meeting the demands of agency clients? I'm not sure if everybody at GSA will be a fan of me saying this, <laughs> but we... Um, we, we are truly vehicle agnostic. Now, fortunately, GSA creates some of the best vehicles out there, so I'm going to use a bunch of them. But if, uh, if a customer requirement comes in that is best suited out of NASA soup, you know, they have a very low fee. They're you know, very effective at, at doing some of the IT commodity purchasing. We would use NASA soup in a heartbeat. You know, just write a memo and say why soup is best, put it in your acquisition plan, proceed. Um, in terms of uh, creating contracts ourselves, we're not in the contract vehicle creation business as a default. That's the other part of GSA that makes the GSA schedules and the GWACs and the MACs. For that DHS requirement for cyber, we have a $6 billion BPA with a, a bunch of different providers on it that's available government-wide. So any other government entity could use it you know, if they were going to do the ordering directly themselves. 
But that's not going to be the default for us. We're, we're going to be looking at existing vehicles and then trying to execute rapidly under those vehicles rather than create our own. So when you, you mentioned this earlier, and honestly, when you get into contracts and contract vehicles types, you know, it can get into alphabet soup. But you mentioned one particular Oasis. Uh, I think it was a, uh, one acquisition solution for integrated services contract. Um, how are you bringing new agencies as users into this contract vehicle? And how is sort of the innovation around this, the discovery market research tool helping that? I like to think that I'm right most of the time, but on this one, I was completely wrong. <laughs> really? The, uh, I, I really did think that, that there wasn't much of a market for uh, this contract when they first started discussing it. Um, Oasis was originally called Integrations in some of the, you know, like 2005 kind of time frame of creating an a, a agency contract that would be for the entire government. And I really did think it was going to be a, a low-dollar labor hour kind of replacement vehicle for uh, Mobis, Pez, Logworld, the GSA Scheduled Professional Services work. Um, yeah, it it was a completely unmet need uh, where there's nothing but blue sky af- ahead of using the Oasis contract. Uh, and it, some of it's due to the relationship on what contract types you could do on GSA schedule. And some of it is agencies, um, by default, were just doing their own IDIQs, which we didn't even, we weren't even having aware of what their, their market spend looked like until a couple of years ago. Where they would be, you know, if it's professional service, separately, they would hire people by the hour, labor hour, time and materials kind of work, and then they would go out separately and buy whatever it is, and then the government would serve as its own integrator. We would piece the thing together and build it. The Air Force is probably most commonly known for that kind of style of contracting. Uh, Oasis came. And suddenly, uh, we, did, we, we had two major acquisitions initially for Oasis. We announced that we were doing them and we were going to try and focus on doing these large professional services buys where they're also going to buy the, the piece parts and, and um, build the outcome for, for that client agency. And suddenly, it exploded. Um, customers, particularly in the Department of Defense, are calling their friends in other parts of the Department of Defense and referring that work to us saying, did you know that there's this thing where you can do cost plus, award fee, or incentive fee style contracting, where this office will do it for you. And um, right now we have a program that's uh, out on the street that that's, I probably shouldn't say the specific number, but it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars for uh, training around IEDs uh, with a couple of clients in the military. And I would have never imagined that we would have something on that size and scale uh, for professional services. There turns out that the spending on, on fresh services is about as much as it is on IT, and there's less competition. There's a ton of IT vehicles. There are very few government-wide professional services vehicles, and I think that that's really where we're going to you know, try and corral the way that the government's spending money and try to make it more efficient and, and focus it much more on getting the outcome rather than getting the best hourly rate on a person or on the stuff. Buying the outcome is, the, is where you need to get to on that. How is FedSim changing the way government does business? We will ask its director, Chris Hamm when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Government leaders and managers face major challenges today, including fiscal austerity, citizen expectation, the pace of technology and innovation, and a new role for governance. These challenges influence how government executives lead today, but more importantly, how they can be prepared for tomorrow. The IBM Center reports Six Trends Driving Change in Government offers a path forward for government executives responding to the ever-increasing complexity and challenges they face today. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. 
I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Chris Hamm, Director of the Federal Systems Integration and Management Center, FedSim. Also joining us from IBM is Tom Birdkey. Chris, we spoke briefly about the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program, also known as CDM. Um, it, it was inaugurated as a new era of cybersecurity in the government. Would you outline the goal of the program and how agencies can leverage the program to improve their overall cybersecurity posture? So there, there are two main areas of responsibility on the CDM program. Uh, the first is DHS has the programmatic responsibility. They're the people that are going to be creating the overall framework for CDM. And so each agency has a, an MOA with with DHS in order to to sign up and participate with the overall process. DHS has hired FedSim in order to do the contract execution of it. The um, the, the first meeting I had uh, was with uh, the former uh, director of that office, John Stroyford. And the way that he explained it uh, still resonates today. Uh, we treated cybersecurity as a paperwork and compliance exercise, not as a actually make things safer exercise. Uh, we had to do three ring binders full of paper, and we had to do ATOs on individual systems. But it was all created and then put on a shelf somewhere. It wasn't checking to see whether or not the stuff that was going through our networks was actually the stuff that we wanted to and who was on our networks. So this is an attempt to unify the way that the entire government puts sensors and, and identity management throughout uh, all of the .gov space. And that way we can actually truly measure our cybersecurity risk profile rather than just making sure that we're creating a bunch of paper that an auditor likes. <laughs> The one thing that we need to get everybody focused on is uh, there's no reason to replace this with creating your own contract. There is a government-wide BPA that's available that anybody can use, and the prices that are on that BPA, you can get a better deal through that BPA than you'll be able to get anywhere else in the market. Don't go out and create your own cyber contract. There's no reason. There's enough ceiling on it, and and there's outstanding pricing, and we can give anybody who wants to buy off of it an ordering guide, show them how to get the pricing, and then help them get the stuff and put it on the networks as fast as they can. Right now, urgency should be more important than the the idea of creating your own replacement cyber vehicle. So that – I want folks to, to, to leave that part of the conversation with understanding that there is something that is already built that is incredibly easy to buy from, and we'll give it to you and, you know, cost just about nothing. And the pricing you're going to see, particularly on the product side, is the scale of the government buying is one rather than each agency buying 27 and getting the price for 27. So there's, there are outstanding value there. Uh, one more follow-up on CDM. While the overall structure of the program is straightforward, would you elaborate on how complex its implementation can be for other agencies? Well, it, it speaks to each agency having its own technical architecture, its own priorities, and its own varying level of maturity. And uh, we, we, We've got the, the pipes part of the government pretty much managed under this trusted Internet connection. But then after that, each agency's got, you know, legacy infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And pre-FATARA, everybody had very decentralized authority. Mm-hmm. You know, the... the CIO at headquarters may not have budgetary approval or at least sign off on on what the component level would, would do. So within each major agency, you might have you know one entity that's component that's ready, and then within the rest of the components, they're not ready, and they have a different technical architecture. So a lot of this is getting everyone to agree that we're all going to follow one standard. It may not be the you know uniform today, but by three years, here's our plan. Here's what we're going to implement, and then you take that within one agency and multiply that times all of the federal civilian agencies, you've got a very difficult conversation within each agency happening right now trying to get the requirements and then agree to schedule on how they're going to implement these things. So the, the, the procurement activity isn't the hard part. It's the requirement activity. It's trying to find out which agency is going to be you know, in what order and which group and when they're going to put you know, each of the different phases in. 
Chris, we spoke briefly uh, previously about just the protest environment in the federal government. Um, FedSim has a sterling reputation for being the honest broker as it chairs and usually represents about 40 percent of the technical evaluation board for FedSim-run procurements. Are the number of protests typically lower with FedSim procurements due to this model? I don't have a way of assessing whether or not um, my protest rate is lower on similar size programs. But my initial reaction is it's probably not lower in terms of the number of protests. The difference is whether or not we're successful in the protest. Uh, I can say without a doubt that we consistently run fair procurements. Um, Industry is very happy with the way that we define requirements, the way that we interact with them before the solicitation goes out, and how we do our evaluations. It's a very consistent process, uh, very high quality. Uh, One thing that's interesting out of this is our incumbent capture rate is hovering around 50%. That means if you were doing the work before and you bid on the next one, whether or not you win the next competition. Um, Part of that's because we're coming in as a a trusted third party that has to read the requirements document from that client agency as if we were anybody that was cold, the same way that GAO would read it too. Mm -hmm. I understand that uh, recently you're going to test the FAR Part 16 pre-award pilot. You're going to do something like that. First of all, before we get into why you're doing it and what the benefit is to the stakeholders like customers, Fed, Sim, and industry, what is FAR Part 16? So there, you know, anybody who uh, wants to to cure insomnia can pick up a copy of the FAR. (laughs) It's a solid, thick book. Um, It's it's kind of the best example of how rules beget more rules, kind of like the tax code. You know, like you write one thing and then, you know, somebody argues and make a a slight change. And so it just gets more and more voluminous. Um, Basic ordering procedures for um, the government tend to fall either under Part 15 or Part 8. Uh, The GSA schedule program is under Part 8. Um, Regular full and open competition uh, for negotiated procurements is under Part 15. Uh, Part 15 and Part 8 are – well, 8 is pretty simple, but 15 is very, very detailed. Mm -hmm. It gives you a step-by-step process of all the individual things like I would mentioned in the earlier segment about how you do a procurement. Part 16, however, is not detailed. Um, part 16 is really only a couple of paragraphs. Oh, and so the, the basic design, if, if you, know, you want to get really wonky here about how acquisition works, uh, when you create a GWAC, you create it under Part 15. Part 15 is full and open competition. Anybody in the world can bid on it. But once it's created, then all ordering happens under Part 16, not under Part 15. And so Part 16 is actually very, very light on rules. There's really only two things that are in Part 16 that are important. Anybody who's on that vehicle has a fair opportunity to be considered. So raise your hand if you're interested in bidding on this next job. And then we have to evaluate price and we have to do debriefs. Other than that, all of the steps that are in Part 15 don't exist in Part 16. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think a lot of people default to Part 15 detailed procedures because it's written and it's comfortable. And if you follow that process, generally you're going to be okay. Part 16 really doesn't have a lot of advocates and a lot of people that are willing to test. So uh, we've decided that we're going to take one of our uh, upcoming internal procurements where we're spending our own money um, and see whether or not we can uh, understand what's permissible under Part 16. Uh, The motivation here is we want to make it faster and we want to lower our costs. Uh, We want to remove the amount of non-value-added time and energy from industry bidding on stuff and, and us doing paperwork. So 
Let's start with the assumption that if they're on the vehicle already, that means they're already qualified. Somebody's already checked to see that they're a real legitimate company. You know, you take any of the, the major companies that are around that have, you know, buildings with their names on them on the side. <laughs> they probably have the techn- technical capability for my, you know, 10-person job kind of thing. Let's stop focusing on the, the corporate capabilities of them and, and all the individual artifacts that were already done at the GWAC level. And let's focus on this one project. Can they do this one project? Let's interview them, see if they can do it. Let's see whether or not the teams work together. Can they actually interact with one another? And can they be assigned for the project? And what does it cost? Those three simple things, that's all you really need. So let's see if we can get through this process by just having an interview, picking the company that's best, comparing the companies to one another, which is something you generally don't do, but Part 16 doesn't forbid that. So company A is better than company B. We write that up. We make an award to them. So see if we can make it as simple as possible and see whether or not uh, ultimately one of these will get challenged. So it'll go to either you know GSA agency or GAO or, or the courts and see whether or not Part 16 was intended to do this or not. This is the kind of experimentation that I was talking about um, earlier where you know, if you just read the letter of the rules and then follow some of the underlying case law from GAO, what's the fastest way to get through this activity and then focus on getting the award done and delivery post-award? Very interesting, Chris. I wish you all the best with your pilot coming up. Um, going back to the just the costing side of things, why does FedSim stay aligned with cost plus award fee contracts? And there are times a firm fixed price might make more sense for the requirement, at least from an industry perspective. Um, yet FedSim will usually stay with the cost plus award fee pricing model. Why is that? Uh, in general, the, uh, the, the people who write policy around contract types are not a fan of this one contract type. Uh, contract or cost plus award fee contracts um, are terribly difficult to administer. Uh, they require a lot of time and attention in the award process up front. And then in the post-award, you've got to have meetings to assess uh, basically what the award fee is or a proxy for what the profit level will be for the company on the project. So whenever you do a cost plus award fee contract, you have to write actually a determination that basically says all of this extra work you're going to do is worth it. Mm-hmm. Why is it worth it? Um, that's, how, that's how least favored this is as a contract type. <laughs> uh, I could say at the outset that <laughs> Conceptually, we're, we're agnostic on contract type. If the requirement calls, it, calls for a firm fixed price, then we will do a firm fixed price. Um, if it calls for some hybrid where you've got some of that, some time and material or some award fee style um, reimbursable contracts, then we'll do that. But in practice, on the larger projects, we do use a ton of cost plus award fee. Uh, the, uh, I have a colleague, Mike Donaldson, who uh, likes to quote some Gartner stats on here on why. Uh, if you ask a government CIO what the future will be, and then later you measure them on whether or not they actually know what the future will be, um, in projects and what they think their responsibility will be, uh, five years out, only 18% of them are right. Mm-hmm. Gardner's, you know, Gardner's analysis is generally, and it should be no surprise, our market changes. Uh, right now, we're very much in an agile software development market. We've been talking about it for a couple of years, but now we're fully in it. Whereas when we awarded contracts five years ago, I bet you they were waterfall. That's the design of how you did software development with an SDLC, and you, know, you followed these rigid procedures, and then when it was done, you plopped this thing in. Suddenly, the world changes. We're in agile, and if you have a firm fixed price contract, there's very little you can do within the confines of that contract. You're kind of stuck with how you were doing it. 
cost does allow you a little bit more agility to make changes within. And then the award fee part helps you alter the contractor's motivation for supporting the changes. So if you're controlling the profit level, you're controlling the fee, the, the intent of the government is very clearly communicated in writing every six months. This is what we're happy with. This is where, what direction we're going. These are the changes that the company needs to make. And so the company will tend to be more responsive when the profit is being redirected towards new messaging around how we're going to deliver the scope. So award fee is much more flexible in, when you're in the larger scale programs. Smaller scale, firm fixed price, labor hour, time and materials, those things you know, certainly have their role. But on the larger ones, we're definitely biased for cost. Mm-hmm. There's another key, um, key argument here, and it's kind of – Kind of us just being contrarian, contrarian on how the, the government went in the last couple of years. There was a lot of emphasis on LPTA, uh, lowest price technically acceptable. And if you're in an ordering activity anywhere, the safest thing for you to do is pick the low price. As a, a contracting officer, it's the most risk-averse thing. You're not going to lose a protest if you pick the low price. You're just not. And so it makes your life administratively easier. You don't have protests to deal with. But it, take, it creates that, that lack of alignment with what's the right thing to do versus what's the easiest thing to do. Um, we continue to do the larger projects that are always best value, tend to be with cost plus award fee. Um, and we also include something in there where we include a cost range. We'll prevent companies from buying in. So while the, the rest of the market reacted to the sequestration and budget cuts by trying to drive to the bottom, we stayed all the way over here on quality. We focus on we still care about getting the work done and having it be successful because while you might save money on something, if it fails, it's worth nothing to you. Mm-hmm. We still care about, you know, we, we, we might end up paying a little bit more for some of the solutions that we build, but they work. And that's much more important than having a project that completely fails. Well, Chris, I want to go back to you mentioned earlier that you, you've had some brain drain, if you will, for, through retirement. And um, it's a twofold uh, question. One is what types of expertise do you have on board at FedSim? But more importantly, what are you doing to replace the folks uh, from an institutional knowledge perspective who have left? Uh, so one is a question on how do I get the people and the other one is how do I train them? Um, we have been the benefit uh, beneficiary of um, the military reducing its size. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, there are a ton of very, very high-quality um, civilians and, and enlisted folks that, uh, after you know, their, their 20-year tour, are ready to take an experience somewhere else. Um, we've been hiring very heavily from the military uh, in order to, to backfill and replace. helps because a lot of our customers are going to be DOD. So uh, yeah. you, they, they speak the language when you say J8 or right pat, like that's not a learning exercise for them like it would be somebody out of college. Um, so we're getting incredible talent now from the military when, when just when it's, you know, its budget's being cut. They're, they're squeezing on their personnel. Um, but the, the way that I'm training them, though, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I, I have you know, all of those certifications that you have to have in order to be you know, a government acquisition person, the, the, the FAC COR and FAC PPM and PMPs and all of that. And I went to one of those classes by one of the, the Beltway providers, and it was a retired contracting officer who was very, very smart, but you know, wanted to tell stories about how the, you know, the A7 debacle, you know, how the plane that was built was you know, the, the worst way of contracting. It wasn't how I do my job, and it wasn't in the systems that how I you know, used to do my job. So I came away frustrated, and I said, I'm going to build a replacement. Um, we have a, a program called FedSim University. Uh, it is a, a multi-factor training program that is 
Um, some of it's online. Uh, some of it is brown bag based. Um, a lot of it's case study, uh, again, Harvard Business School kind of thing, mm-hmm. experiential learning where you're sitting there talking about all the projects that we have. Um, one of my favorite parts of it is we have the FedSim failures where we made our biggest mistakes, the people who made the mistakes and how they responded to their r- mistakes. Um, we have some of those you know, every couple of months just to be able to, all right, so this, what, if this happens, here's how you fix it and here's how you avoid this from happening again. What does the future hold for GSA's Federal Systems Integration and Management Center, or FedSim? We will ask its director, Chris Hamm, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. In a world inundated with all kinds of information, timely, relevant, and more predictive data can drive better decision-making. Law enforcement agencies are at the forefront in leveraging data and using innovative software to generate predictions that help police prevent crime. What is predictive policing? How can using analytics make us safer? Check out the IBM Center report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics by Jen Bachner, and find out. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What do agency leaders need to know about the federal acquisition process? What are some of the key federal procurement trends? And how can agency leaders overcome today's acquisition challenges? Check out the new Center Report, A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition, by Trevor Brown and find out. The report offers practical recommendations for improving federal acquisition. Download your free copy of A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Chris Hamm, Director of the Federal Systems Integration and Management Center, FedSim. Also joining us from IBM is Tom Burkey. So, Chris, I, I get to talk to a lot of my guests about the use of collaboration and partnerships among agencies, the private sector, to achieve mission results. And how are you leveraging at FedSim partnerships and collaboration to improve operations, achieve program outcomes, and mission execution? This goes back to to what surprised me about that lack of transparency. Sure. Um, so I'm here <laughs> giving an interview. I also um, I try and interact with any sort of uh, trade association or public venue where I can interact with both industry and with government. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very active in the ACT-IAC uh, oh. uh, organization. Uh, I've also recently started being active in um, AFCIA, the, nice. the Bethesda chapter of AFCIA, and now a firm. Um, I've even done some other um, smaller ones. There's probably an acronym somewhere out there that I, can, I haven't joined yet. But um, the purpose for being in all of these uh, individual associations is you have to have a network and relationships uh, with the industry partners and with other, other government leaders. And by m- me going out there and interacting with them, whenever something happens, I can get a phone call that I can address something that's a failure rather than having to go through some sort of formal memo, congressional protest kind of thing. Um, interact with people face-to-face, develop relationships, and then you'll be able to, to influence whatever's happening rather than just you know being the stodgy old siloed government. And so I'm trying to get out there in order to interact m- more with people, and I'm, I'm trying to get other people, so I'm trying to you know, recruit them into participating so that you can pick your head up away from your desk and think about what's good for the government overall versus what's, what protects my job security and safety around the individual job that I have. So, uh, Chris, a cornerstone of successful performance management is support from leadership and uh, the use of good analytics. Would you elaborate on how you're using analytics, not only to improve services and quality, but uh, also to identify new customers and services? 
we do something that's somewhat unique. Um, it happens only at FedSim. I've seen it at one or two other federal agencies um, that also have um, some sort of underlying fee-based model. Um, the uh, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency does something similar and SEC does something similar. Um, as an organization, um, my employees fill out a daily time card that accounts for what project they're working on which translates to the amount of cost that we have that's going to be billed to a customer. It doesn't sound revolutionary. Um, it sounds pretty ordinary because that's what every contractor in the world does. You have accountability for your time. You think about, I spent two hours on this assignment and put it into this job code and your Deltec system or whatever your you know, system is, rolls all that up. What I do with that data, uh, I can tell you today exactly how much it costs me to award each of those 140 projects that we have. I mean, down to the penny. I know based on the, the bottoms up on my budget and how much I'm spending on the organization and how much time costs and, you know, what people's goals are for how much time they, they spend, I know how much the CDM program costs me. I can, I can tell Congress that number tomorrow. Very few people could say what their acquisition activity actually costs them. If I were in charge, and I've submitted this as the, the, the president's save award like every year in a row now, nobody and everybody votes it down because they hate the idea, but just make everybody fill out a time card. I don't even care if there's money on it. Make people think about their time having value and assign that time to projects, and that alone could be transformational for the government. Mm -hmm. You could think about what you're doing in your time and it has value and then you'd force people to have the conversations that otherwise they would just avoid on why it's taking so long. Chris, you're known as a smart, young, and energetic leader. Where do you plan to take FedSim in the years to come? Tell me more, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, yeah, my first reaction was, did my mom write this question? <laughs> Is there anything you can't do? Uh, no, in all, all seriousness, what, uh, what I'd really like to do is I'd like to extend our technical platform to be available to be used government-wide. Um, it's got a ways to go. Um, you know, I've still got to do some, some time and attention on it. But in general, because we're not treating acquisition like it's a value-added activity, um, it tends to be an, a bolt-on onto a financial system. Every agency cares very much about how they spend their money. And so one of the first things that they built, um, a lot of companies you know, got into this market space in the 70s and 80s, systems for tracking the money. And over time, the system for tracking the money got additional features to show that how you know, a procurement request or an order or something moves through that financial system. But it's designed by the financial people. It's not designed by the acquisition people. Mine's coming at it from the other side. I've got to take everybody's money, so I've got a financial system that checks and makes sure that it's you know, the right year and color and all of that of money. But my system was built as an acquisition workflow system that plugs into all the government-wide databases that are available to, uh, for us to have some sort of interconnection with. So you get a, you know, like whenever you're on a modern website, there's a very clear step one, step two, step three, step four, and your order is done. I want to have that kind of platform extended to everyone else so that they can take their own money. They're not using my services. They're just taking this underlying platform and showing at each step in the process all of the stakeholders who care about that thing. This is it. Acquisition planning, this is under competition, this thing is awarded, this is when the options are coming up. You log on just the way that you log on today at home at your bank. You, know, you can just type in your username and password. You can see all the transactions that you had, what you did with everything. There is no reason why the government doesn't have an equivalent version of that for how we're spending our money. And if you did it all through one system, 
All the data that you'd be entering into FPDS would be accurate. You would never have to have this separate divining company that tells you where spending is going and analysis on it. And all of the other you know, things you need to check, like the excluded parties list and all of the CPARS reports, all of that should be one platform that everybody's connecting to rather than us building 27 individual procurement financial system bolt-ons. That's where I think we all need to go. Excellent. So, uh, Chris, as you reflect on your career in public service, what advice would you give someone who's considering such a career? Um, I started as a um, um, presidential management intern. Now it's a fellow, uh, but uh, the concept was uh, you bring people into the government, uh, relatively high grades for coming in. You start out as a 9, then you go to uh, an 11, and then a 12. And the idea is you get people out of grad school um, who are still trying to make a difference and can try and shift the government. Um, the washout rate in my program was about 50% at year two, um, and it was much higher. I, I, I only know a couple from the class that I was in that are still federal employees. And I noticed a trend there of the ones who thought that they could come to Washington and make an immediate change at the mid-job you know, mid level um, were very dissatisfied. Mm-hmm. They ended up trying to, you know, they, they went to the State Department or somewhere, and then ultimately they left because they weren't they were in charge of their own programs. They didn't, they couldn't make a meaningful impact, so they went to nonprofits or somewhere else. Um, I'm not sure, you know, how effective you know each agency is right now at the bringing people in are going to try and drive change. But at least in my experience, um, what's kept me here. And what I think that other people can find, whether or not it's in my agency or in other parts, is there are pockets of true innovation within the government where the the workforce is valued, the technology is cutting edge, and at a younger age than you would in the private sector, you have responsibility control of a major program. When I was 25 years old, I was in charge of an $800 million program. That's amazing. My my friends didn't believe it. (laughs) And so... If you want to work for the government, there, there's incredible opportunity if you can find the right environment that aligns with what your underlying needs are. Uh, the best example I'd say for, for like working at GSA, you know, I, don't, I don't work in the CIO shop. I don't have a vested interest in praising them. But I have my Android phone here. I have Google as my email. Um, I have a virtual desktop environment where I can log on from my home computer if I want to. I, I'm assigned a laptop. I have the ability to make a hotspot with that thing. So I can do my job from anywhere. GSA is incredibly progressive at, you know, I, I got young kids. I got to work from home today because one of them's got strep throat. I can get my entire job done. Every system I need to access, I can access it from anywhere. That's not something most companies can say. Mm-hmm. So you find some place that's like that, that you can drive at, you're going to get an opportunity to be more successful at a younger age than you're going to see in, in most regular um, private careers. That's terrific insight. Um, this has been a great conversation, Chris. I appreciate you coming in, taking some time out of your busy day. But more importantly, Tom and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you very much. I mean, it, I, I'm really happy to have an opportunity to, to talk about some of our initiatives. And if anyone you know, just wants to have the opportunity to bounce some ideas off of anyone, uh, I, I'd, lo- I'd love to talk to anybody about procurement. I'm very passionate about how we do this. And if anyone wants copies of those templates or some of the processes that we've developed, uh, government stuff, free to share. Hopefully that you can, uh, you can implement more things so that we can make uh, the entire government more efficient in the future. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Chris Hamm, director of FedSim. My co-host from IBM has been Tom Burtke. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. 
This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What is the Ready to Govern initiative? How will it promote presidential transition reforms within Congress? What is it doing to put management at the forefront of the next administration's agenda? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Max Steyer, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, next week on the Business of Government Hour. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.